out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Celia Hemkin, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. During the very early 80s, was at the UEA in Norwich, University of East Anglia, and was in a band titled or called Juju, who did a John Peel session with Celia in the band. They also did another John Peel session, but she wasn't in the band at that stage, and then went on to form various other musical combos, probably the most famous being Blue Nova, who appeared in the late 80s and early 90s, did two albums. And then Celia's gone on to make films, do soundtrack, write books, paint, do an awful lot of other stuff. Anyway, you're going to find out much, much more in this in-depth interview, so do take notes. I will test you at the end, so um, after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject. That was the early formative years. Celia, it's over to you. I think it started uh, from the very beginning, you know, with nursery rhymes, which was actually something that was uh, that I kept going back to in pop music or, and, and writing music. Um, but my parents, uh, my father was tone deaf and he used to do comedy acts singing Lily Marlene tone deaf. And my mother just admitted that she had no education about, about music, but they loved it. And there was a lot of it um, in the house. My mother had this mail order thing where we get these little EPs delivered and uh, and we'd get, um, they'd also brought in a lot of foreign ones because they'd done a lot of traveling before they had their kids. And so there were, it was just a delight, these EPs, and some of them were colored, bright red or the vinyl. And uh, the foreign ones had uh, big, larger holes for the, um, you know, for the uh, uh, record player, which was yeah. a different configuration in the, uh, so there was a, a lot, there was, um, uh, Mireille Mathieu, uh, Jose Marie Naville, which was uh, this girl who was discovered when she was very young. And um, she had some lovely songs and they were just uh, all in French, obviously. And she'd be singing away Johnny. Um, and uh, there was Francois Hardy, who I love, Tous les garçons, Les filles de mon âge. So I knew all of that stuff. Oh, the German, because my father went to school in Switzerland. And so there was a lot of influence and then, but a lot of classical. And they were all very kind of bite-sized that you could take it. So it was all like a, a whole planet suite that was actually sort of reduced to an EP, you know, so that you could take it all in. And I just listened to those things feverishly. I didn't have um, any sibling that was going to educate me um, or parents that were going to educate me. I had an autistic sister who was obsessed with music. No. Um, and so, uh, yeah, uh, growing up with that and then listening to the radio with my mother in the kitchen, um, Burt Bacharach um, and the Beatles came along and uh, all of us, all the whole family seemed to be able to listen to one song forever on a loop. It was constantly hearing it over and over again. My father listening to Hey Jude until you couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> and it was like that. Um, so it was very, very, uh, you know, and then, then soundtracks to TV programs. I was, I was in a little village in Berkshire playing out on the street. And uh, 
in the road most of the time, which he kind of did then, and then coming in, especially coming in for Top of the Pops. I mean, yes. that was yeah. And I was a classic girl, you know, in her bedroom, just a classic little girl where it was all, and, and boys as well, um, where it was all just in your imagination and just sort of visualizing how the world was going to be, you know, how glamorous it could be. Watching uh, Eartha Kitt was another one of these uh, um, EPs. I want to be evil. I want to chew tax. I mean, it wasn't that evil what she was talking about, but it was evil enough for me. And I thought, me too. I want to be evil too. Wow. So, yes. Yeah. That's amazing. And it's kind of it's kind of interesting because you mentioned the soundtrack. Because there's one thing that, because my parents, you know, from a con uh, village, in the depths of East Anglia. And I think with their kind of working class background, when they got married in the late 50s, they kind of sold all their possessions because people didn't use to borrow money. That was a, a big no-no. So they didn't, mm -hmm. they didn't have a record player until the early 70s. But obviously the radio mm -hmm. was always on, Radio 1 on Radio 2, and yeah. the Top 40 and Top of the Pops were, were kind of religious experience. But I do remember when they, they did get a record player and they, did, they bought a Carpenters album, which was just brilliant because I love the Carpenters. And those lyrics and songs are still with me today and I still think they're amazing but they they did have the great war themes of, of you know those soundtracks and they did have a one which is the tv themes as well which was incredibly embarrassing but um it was <laughs> you wouldn't want to play it more than once would you really but the carpenters I did play a lot but I do remember this tv theme but the, the great war ones there was Hannibal Brooks which was just a beautiful bit of music and the 633 squadron I mean they're great soundtracks so um yes it was it was more difficult to access sometimes music but you obviously your parents brought you on to a sort of quite a good sort of gig with all your mail order albums and EPs yeah yeah the, the EPs yeah and then my dad going to trips to Germany and bringing bringing stuff back um and it just you know I'm sure a lot of kids like this it just all soaked in um and then I think I remember my first um EP was um Where's your mama gone? Where's your mama gone? Oh, yes. I mean, so I've actually had to listen to that again. I was thinking, well, you know, but I was so excited to get this. My aunt gave it to my to me for my birthday because here it was captured, and, and now this was mine. And then it was the second one was T Rex, get it on. So we went from. <laughs> Chirpy, chirpy, cheap, chirp to get it on, bang it on. Yes. I mean, did I really understand what was being said there? But I got, I got the kind of uh, in the, you know, in the hips kind of movement of that, and that was just, and you know, and he had all this makeup and um, just looked beautiful. He did so look that, so beautiful. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There was, there was and something. I, I, I think I liked the repetition. You know, just the simplicity, the the kind of the repetition. But, um, you know, there was sort of, rather than albums, although I went on a pony trekking holiday, I was singing, in, I was playing the flute, classical flute, and my mother, she, that was really my introduction to actually, you know, uh, playing music, and she, she was a teacher, and she had been asked to join the school um, orchestra, and uh, she'd been given the school flute, she can get a sound out of it, so she gave it to me, and I was just committed to getting a sound out of that. And I, you know, I'd get all my homework done. I practice um, this flute, and uh, so you know, I had I had running in conjunction with classical and pop. Um, yes. And 
you know, uh, classical is this sort of very disciplined world. And then pop was where I felt like you could be free and, uh, you know, and dressing up and performing. That's right. Absolutely. And then you had, I, I suppose it would have been years later before you found the work of Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull, wouldn't you? And his his flute playing, but um, that yeah. was probably, that yeah, was a whole was nother um, back to the back to the future, something like that. Back, I remember trying to do that. Oh, living it, living in there was living in the past. Living was in the past, from 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 from. Yeah, very different sound he had. You know, um, so where did drama from, and did musical theatre start to come into your life during the seventies? Oh, God, God no. Oh yes, that's right. You're right. Godspell and Jesus Christ superstar. Godspell. Yeah. Yes, the work of when, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Was Godspell Andrew Lloyd Webber? I'm not sure, actually. But no, Jesus Christ Superstar was, is Andrew Lloyd he Webber. Was, and... Yes. Godspell was David Essex, which I think was why I was there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did love David Essex. He had a sort of moody quality, didn't he? And um, yes, you know. A kind of gypsy uh, thing going on. But my, but when on a pony trekking, my first album was Honky Chasso by Elton John. Which where I felt like I was really starting to grow up a bit. Um, I don't know why particularly. I think it's because there were older lads from Glasgow who had this. And they had they were playing it over and over again. So and then that was just introducing that to my best friends, and then we just got all the albums and obsessed on that. But um, did so you, not did you, very did you, refined. Well, I don't know. You, there was. Yeah. Did you get Yellow Goodbye Yellow Brick Road by Elton John as well? Oh so that, yeah, we had the whole lot. Yeah, because there's a couple of songs on there which I think on side four is a double album, isn't it? There's a track called Harmony, which is the last song, which I still think is one of those beautiful, kind of sad, melancholic songs, which I just think lyrically is stunning. He was so diverse, wasn't he? I mean, each sort of album, he was progressing and changing, and he yes. was very. Americanized. I mean, he sang with an American accent and sort of listening back to stuff, I realized that a lot of people did, didn't they? They sang because of the, the power of American music. A lot of British people sang with American accents, if you if you listen to it. Yes, uh, abs no, absolutely. And what about David Bowie? Did he come into your consciousness at all during that Ziggy he, Stardust? No, you know, no, not really. I mean, it was more his singles and the idea of dressing up um he was he was a particular love of a, a guitarist that i had later on you know in a band um no it was it was um who would make i it was i was just omnivorous i would just take in everything and i didn't it wasn't one particular artist after the elton john thing it all branched out into just everything and anything and um it was more singles that would sort of impact me, um, like, for example, Kate Bush, Wuthering Heights. Oh, yes. When that came out, I was absolutely knocked sideways because suddenly there was someone, I could sound sound like that. And, uh, and she's, how could that possibly happen? I think that says a lot about British music at the time, that you could have left a field artists and songs coming into uh, the mix and it was all allowable you know radio stations at the time the delight of them you know because I've been mainly recording um, you know stuff off the radio and listen back on to the tapes the tapes I've made of of just you know uh, 
songs and and it was so diverse that you could go you would listen to anything it wasn't like when i went to live in the states and we've become more like that now where you have it all broken into genres yes have to suffer through the kind of the heavy the songs that you thought were trite or a bit silly or too kind of hard or too heavy or not quite to your taste and i think that was very good that was actually very good because i think that seeped in on some level you know the diversity or listening to heavy metal you could still hear the chord progressions and, yes. and identify but i was very very tuned i think playing the flute was all very much about the the melodies um I often got teased because I never knew the words to things, but I would just get lost in the harmonies and the words and, and, and the, the, the melodies mainly and how they were sung and the feel of it. Um, so it was more, it was never particularly albums. It was always sort of singles. And maybe I was always interested in how you, why a song became popular. Why did it go up the charts? Um, and become number one. I mean, there are probably all sorts of reasons behind the scenes yes. why those things happen, but not to, to my ears at the time. I was trying to work out what it was that um, people liked, why, why something became so popular and why it was so why it was so diverse, why it was novel, why it could be a novelty thing one minute and then a ballad the next minute. I think that was that was great. I, I love that yes. as a kind of musical education. I think it's one of the great mysteries in the world, isn't it? Like, because because all that you know, a classic song, whether you really like it or not, it's it's kind of possibly not important. But you kind of think, yeah, yeah there, there is something quite special about this song. There's something unique, which was we. I'm going to remember it, and it will be remembered for the next fifty years. Yeah, you know, regardless of whether I like the artist or the band, but there is something special. There is something there, and that I find that kind of fascinating because because occasionally you get a documentary where somebody will think, let's write that classic song, so we'll get this these these musicians and this songwriter and this studio and this engineer, and they'll do this documentary for an hour, and they'll you know get this singer and they'll go through this process and and at the end they 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 play something that you think it's all there but it's completely forgettable whereas when you mention you know middle of the road doing chirpy chirpy cheap cheap you think 50 years later it's like yeah well it's a classic song isn't it but they they probably recorded another 10 albums so you know you think yeah don't worry about it but that song is it's going to be there and it's you know why is that? What is it? What captures the the people's imaginations or imagine where, where that becomes the thing? That always fascinated me. That just yes, fascinated me. The notion of popularity, you know. Meanwhile, I'm doing, you know, cla the classical world, which is, uh, you know, working hard on, on that um, and also being in choirs and doing uh, classical choirs. Uh, I was in quite young. Uh, everybody was a lot older than me. But my uh, the music teacher got me in this choir. We ended up going to Capital Radios and and singing some songs um, uh, in the studio. That was my first experience in the studio. Yes, at um, that. Um, and I was always the baby um, singing away. And then I got I got they gave me a solo, which was some uh, song at Bermuda Buggy Ride. And I remember, you know, apparently I went out and I really just sold it. I performed it. And I think that was also, you know, my theatrical background was very much a part of wanting to be in a band and perform and be on stage. Because um, I can remember when I was, you know, very, very little being on stage and my 
and it was some kind of Chinese, um, it was a short, short little thing that we'd made out of a, a Chinese play or parable or something. And I'd been given this um, mustache. My mother had made it out of wool. And I remember twirling this in my fingers and the, and the audience laughing. And I thought, ah, this is it. So right. it was that theatrical, well, you know, you mentioned David Bowie. That, I mean, a lot of that's, yeah. Yes. Theater, just, you know, Kabuki or whatever he was, you know, influenced by. So, yes. um, so that was a very, very important part. And glamour fame i wanted to be i wanted the world of glamour and fame and yes. i wanted to get on to top of the pops and uh uh you know and 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 live what i thought would be a glamorous life you know it, second by second it would be steeped <laughs> constant glamour, you know because that's what it looked like from the outside well i think it, there was elements of that in the 70s wasn't there because you had that you know, the Eagles, you had Fleetwood Mac, you had those kind of super groups where you'd suddenly see these bits of film of them, you know, on these amazing buses or these great tours with all these trucks and, you know, people sort of getting their Persian carpets and putting on the car, you know, on the stage. And, you know, everybody was kind of, it was a really excessive sort of period, wasn't it? And then you had, you know, glamorous sort of models appearing in our lives, you know, which yeah. were kind of, everything was very... Um, like David Bailey, you know. Yeah, I used to pour through those magazines and uh, and see how that was done, you know. Um uh, a woman saying, you know, I made myself into a model by thinking it, by I changed my bones by just seeing myself, you know, as a model. I forget her name. She had a gap between the teeth and used to put chewing gum in between. So Lauren Hutton. Right. Blimey. Yes. yes. Well, it was, it was a, but when you yeah. got to 16 and you had to do your A-levels and you, were you already thinking drama, going to university, studying uh, drama at that? Oh, uh, no. I mean, it was... <clears throat> I'd done, I'd been in a play and it was, I'd been Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream, which was sort of the perfect part for me. And, um, you know, I think people sort of saw that I had something, uh, you know, people, it, it made a big impact at the time. And um, so, yes, I wanted to be an actress um, very much. That's what I wanted to be, was an actress. And, uh, you know, and I was also writing poems. I won a poetry prize, a school poetry prize, where I sort of, which, and all of these things were startling to me. It was always like it was happening to somebody else. I didn't quite believe this was me because I, my, my background was very, very modest, very sort of mm. humble. I would, I would come off, you know, stage just high as a kite with the great euphoria of that. My parents were, it was like it never happened because the last thing they wanted for me was to go off and live <laughs> live this life. They wanted me to have security for everything that they had striven for. Um, yes. Did they want so, you to work in a bank? They, a teacher or an accountant, something like that. What they what they did, you know, yes. something very very, you know. And I I remember this being sort of overwhelming. Um, that I couldn't live like that. I just wanted to get out. I had to, I had to find any means to get out, but my mother had high academic expectations. So I was sort of put on that track um, of, I did Latin for A-level. Wow. Can you? <laughs> I 
so you such a useful thing i did classical greek i was just oh my god you know but everything was so dying on the inside where i was trying to you know keep everybody happy and just keeping my own dreams of freedom and just adventure and let me out of here i i had my plans i was going to hit as soon as i can i mean even going to university going to you know university of east anglia norwich just now i I remember going there, um, I think I was going on the coach and traveling all the way, thinking, what am I doing out here in the middle of nowhere? And it was some kind of drama thing we had to do. I was, you know, in drama, doing a drama major. And it was just, just, you know, not my idea of a good time. And uh, and sitting through the seminars, all this, you know, I turgid sort of academia being in the library. It was just, how, how am I going to get the hell out of here so I mean I think what I did get and I don't know if it came before the band in 1982 the John Peel session um but I did get a part in a court vial uh Bertolt Brecht Threepenny Opera right nice yeah and I was Jenny the whore and I thought how am I gonna because I had this very sort of ethereal voice and I thought how am I maybe it was after the band but how am I going to cut through um, and get a voice that is going to be, I wanted it harsh and loud. So that was a big turning point was uh, using, you know, actually performing a character. And Bertolt Brecht was um, important to me because it was very kind of simple music. And that was the whole whole point. It was like sort of pop songs and you you sang and you talked about, he talked about what he wanted to talk about and he talked about difficult things. Here's this whore and his, uh, you know, all the life and it was gritty um and there was a harshness to it and I remember just um stepping out and doing this I think it was Mac the Knife oh, yes. yeah I got that song I got that song and I did I did I made a spin on it I did something different with that but I don't remember if that was before or after what happened was when I did uh, when I was going through all the classical thing um I had a a friend who went off to the National Youth Theatre and um, she was, she sang and we did, uh, we, the school was very, uh, very prolific in performing. Lucky to have that. A lot of plays, a lot of musical stuff, a lot of skits, a lot of people messing around. And we got on and did some songs together. And uh, I remember that being, you know, sort of really exciting. Why am I telling you that? Um, Oh, and then as a result of that, we had a school band. Because I'm telling you all of this because it's sort of interesting to me how people, you know, I want other people to know how you start your life and how things grow and they build, you know, yes. and that anyone can do it, you know, and things can happen and um, and you can end up, you know, on a record label in the States, which is what happened to me. But so, you know, these, these all these beginnings were really important, really sort of seminal to me. So I was, so the guy who was playing the drums, who organized the band, there was the, the school band. He, his father was a percussionist for Shirley Bassey and all kinds of people, really interesting man. And this boy, you know, would get taken out every now and then to go and play drums. He was on some kind of session and you'd see him leave. He was taken out of class and just, God, that must be amazing. I think he played session from very young for, for Thin Lizzy or something like that. And we all watched him go. And I thought, that's a great life. I want, that's what I want. So I'm in this 
and we're now, you know, by the, on the Thames, uh, I'm singing a backing singing. And that was my first experience of actually singing in a band, you and me and me and you, I think about you day. <laughs> I, I love that song. And um, it was quite a, a traumatizing experience because the noise, you know, this is not like being in a band, being in an orchestra. I mean, I've been in doing the 1812 or whatever <laughs> with the cannons going off, but this, this is a whole different experience. So when I got to UEA, um, I sort of didn't want to. I wanted to. Didn't want to see classical flute anymore. I, you know, I turned my back on that for a while. Um, but then I found a guy who was playing by the lake at Norwich University. Oh yes, he, the lake. The lake. He was Phil Smith, and I think they'd been signed to Haircut One Hundred, and I think they were already on television. Do you remember that band, Haircut One Hundred? Oh my God, Haircut. Yes, with um, Nick Haywood. Nick it? Haywood. You know, fantastic day. Yes. Well, he was the saxophonist with them, and he was playing on soprano saxophone. And I said, "Oh, you know," I started chatting to him, and he was just playing by the lake and. Um, sunny day and everything. and I said so what does it take to play that then and he said oh well it's uh, I said well I play the flute he said it's the same fingering for the flute but you want you probably the alto saxophone so I went out and got myself an alto saxophone and, and lo and behold yeah it was the same fingering as the flute but you had to get a different position for the mouth you know it was a very different you had to have a lot more strength yeah uh, uh, to, to play that and so I just started playing that and I could run up and down because I was you know very fluent on the flute I'd done all my grade eights and all of those sort of you know strictures those exams and I was first flute in in orchestras and this that and the other youth I was playing in semi-professional um, orchestras on the flute well now I had the saxophone and I thought well this has got to be good because I'm a girl and I play the saxophone and so and I don't know how uh, the band particularly heard of me or how that we met up, um, but they, you know, they said, come in and just play. And um, so that's that's how it started with Juju in the. Right. Uh, so with your with the guy, the Paul Phil Smith guy. Yeah. Was that? No, not him. Who was the guy? Who was the drummer who did session? Was that when you were still at school, that that yeah. connection? That was a school. But when you kind of came to the UEA and you stayed in the ziggurats for a year and you had your student grant. Well, and... no, I was in Waveney Terrace, which weren't the ziggurats. So, oh, it wasn't. It was, you know, whoever designed that building, that was that was the epitome of, of isolation and loneliness that stretched the Oh God! Oh uh, yes, I think they knocked no, all that down twenty years ago, didn't they? Did it, they? Yes, oh, it's... for that. I mean, whoever designed that. I mean, it, you could never run into anyone. It was just that long line of, uh, yeah. Well, someone anyway, said it was sorry, based. Someone said say? it was based on a prison design, which sort of. Ah! It was oh, it was grim. It was it, grim. It was Waveney Terrace. Oh, right. So you were there in your first year. Yeah, my and, first year, yeah. And that was nineteen seventy-nine. Your first yeah. year to nineteen eighty. So did did the punk world come into your consciousness? Because you obviously were old enough to suddenly yeah. hear the Sex Pistols and Buzzcocks and it, the Clash. It, well, you know, I saw the I saw them on television. You know, and that with uh, what was he called? Grundy? Johnny Rotten. Oh, the no, Bill Johnny Grundy Rot show. Bill, yes. 
And I looked at those guys and I thought, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think at the time I just thought, wow, it didn't satisfy any kind of need to, to rebel. But the music, yeah, was just, uh, and I, then I became really interested in Johnny Lydon and read a lot of his books because I just loved his spirit. He was a sort of like a Victorian, um, I don't know. Yes. Um, you know, he had a kind of that London, uh, almost sort of traditional, the whole way he was. It's almost like a sort of Cockney Sparrow. Uh, kind of <laughs> but then he had this, this, uh, yeah. So that, that, yeah, that was massive. But in a, very much in the backdrop because I wasn't sort of rebelling particularly. No, but there was there was quite a few bands that started using the saxophone a lot, wasn't there? There was people like um, X-Ray Specs, and they had yeah. a saxophone. Then there um, was the, there was the Hazel uh, O'Connor, the Hazel O'Connor classic, wasn't it? Will you, which has this amazing and the one, the and then the two tones. So um, Ghost Town, who did that? Um, that was the specials, and then there was the beat, and yeah, it was so a big they, thing. They all brought in the sack. And then there was people like Ian Dury and the Blockheads. And, yes. and and a lot of people just said, right, we've got the saxophone, Joe Jackson, et cetera. Yeah. So, yes, the saxophone became big. So at this stage, were you kind of taking your studies very kind of seriously? Or was it a little bit mm. like, well, this is just a stepping stone to my next my next kind of. Yes. Uh, I didn't know. You know, I mean, I, I met a guy who was quite a bit older than me, a mature student. I've always had to have people really kind of pushing. Well, why don't you do this? Well, why don't you do that? And he was, uh, you know, what? why don't you? He was the one who said, get your flute out and, uh, you know, play again uh, when he saw it in Waveney Terrace in my room. I thought, no, I don't want to. And uh, then it just sort of snowballed from that. Um and then I'd had some experience singing, but really that first session, what happened with that was we did a song. I said the boys were sort of jazz funk. We had the great players. I mean, the drama was just great. We had a fretless bass, which was a thing at the time, if you remember. Jacko Pastorius, there was oh, uh, yes. a lot of fretless bass and a lot of emphasis on bass. And I'd love to bring that back now, the fretless bass, because you really don't hear that around. Um, and he, he had such a great touch. And then these great guitarists who just worked, worked together. And it was, you know, the rehearsals was just sort of playing the saxophone. It was all, and I just got fed up with that because I wasn't big on really the soloing idea. You know, from, as I said to you, I liked the way that, you know, songs were constructed. And it wasn't for me, the 70s and all that soloing wasn't something that appealed so much to me. I mean, I, 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 it was there as a backdrop, but I was really, for me, the 80s was great because it wasn't so much about that, you know. Yes. Um, it, was, it was interesting because the, there was the, the punk scene in London, you know, has a particular sound, but that punk scene in New York was much more diverse. I remember a lot of the bands that I've sort of listened to since then and the labels that appeared in New York, they brought in a lot more kind of world jazz, you know, kind of improvisation. It was much more, there was a lot more experimental music going on in New yeah. York in the the yeah. early early 80s, late 70s, which, yeah. you know, it's, quite, it's sometimes a bit difficult to listen to because it's so kind of... Yes, it has a lot of staccato rhythms and sort of, but at the same time, there is a, there's a lot going on. And and the artists, you always feel the artists were quite tortured and quite complex. 
you couldn't yeah. say you couldn't say Sham sixty nine were a complex band, could you really? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean they were the, they were, but there was I mean what I got from that was that it was all bets were off. You could do anything. Yes, do anything, and that was incredibly liberating, you know. And so, you know, I said, I said to the band, um, you know, why don't we do songs? And so that's that was uh, how we we then did this uh, single, which now I think it was called it was uh, called uh, So Here It Is. If you ever listen to that single, which is went onto the fanzine, which caught John Peel's, that's what put Norwich really. I mean, so I was told was what interested John Peel um, in UEA, which because uh, there were a lot of sessions came out of that time from, you know, in the, from bands in the university. And apparently it was that song on a fanzine. But if you listen to that song now, oh my God, <laughs> I don't know what people would have to say about that now. Yes. Um, <laughs> so with, with your, be so you would you did a single. Was this on something called Real Records? That's that? right. It was a fanzine. It was a it was an audio fanzine called Real. Yeah, was it Real something? And it was um, was it David Gut Gutridge who put it put it together? Yeah, I wouldn't have known. I wouldn't have known. I uh, you know, this was up to the band. The band were doing. I just kind of showed up. You know, um, did my thing. Made suggestions like. Why don't we do songs? Tell you what, I'll write. I'll write the words, and um, that was my contribution. And then that, so that song came out. It wasn't a single. It didn't go out on any label. It was just a song that we did that that John Peel picked up on. And then, lo and behold, you know, now we're having this session. Yes, your your John Peel session, which was recorded on the nineteenth of April, nineteen eighty two, which is amazing. Produced by. Tony Wilson at the Maid of Al Studios. This is this is kind of kids now, and probably anybody else would just be like, "God, it's so easy." How did you know? It's well, I didn't. I just kind of assumed that this is how it all happened. You know, um, the thing about it was that in the rehearsals, when whenever I showed up and played, it was so loud. And this is something I knew about that I got very used to playing with with uh in bands and especially boys it has to be said that nobody was really listening uh they weren't really listening to me or what I was singing you know and actually on that session I think there were I think I had quite hadn't quite figured out all the lyrics and I was just you know gonna do it on the spur of the moment <laughs> so I didn't realize because I've been used to just, well, I thought, you know, this is being in a band, you're basically in a fog of noise. So when it came to actually, you know, recording, I thought, God, everybody can hear me. You know, I'm super exposed. Um, but, you know, I love I love that about that kind of spirit that I had. Um, that, well, you know, it's fine. I'll sort of, I'll figure it out on, <laughs> on the day. I mean, obviously, some of it, a lot of it was sort of, uh, worked out but uh, I didn't really know what I was going to play or what it was really going to sound like um and um I think the, the guys were a bit unnerved because there was a there was a chap at university whose brother came to scout me at this thing and I'd had this I remember it was all done in a Harley Quinn's costume which I'd stolen from my school's attic and had kept from the 30s so I was dressed in this in these recording and these people were marching through from some kind of label to see um 
and to sort of propose a song to me, which was that I could could have covered. Right. And I remember ending up in a car, very in a sports car, so very low down, and this song was put on, and they said, we want you to sing this song. And I said, well, what's the matter with the girl who's singing this song? And they said, well, the only problem with her is she's got two heads. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is, this is a very fast world. I'm not sure that I want to, I'm not sure that I really want to be part of this if, if they're going to talk about people like this. But, you know, we we played out live with that band. We supported Rip Rig and Panic. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, yes, my God, yeah. of course. Yeah. And so, I mean, that was just in the deep end now playing live. Um, and uh, and did, you, did you enjoy the live experience? I was absolutely terrified. I was beyond terrified. I thought that I, you know, what was I going to say in between the songs? I didn't, you know, I everything had been scripted up to that point in, in plays, and now I had to think of things to say. And uh, yeah, so I, you know, I think I sort of took the Mickey out of <laughs> the boys in the band, which didn't go down well. And I remember, you know, the gigs that we did that were packed. It was just packed. You know, there was no, you know, the usual thing is you play to one person in a pub and maybe get your feet a bit wet. Yes. You know, but this was just, wow. And did you play some gigs around Norwich, like the Jackard or the Arts Centre? Yeah, we and... played the Jackard, yes. So you were you were on the scene for a bit, weren't you? No. Because I got I got fired after that first session, so uh, the John Peel <laughs> session. <laughs> so. You got fired. Oh no, that's so sad. So so, what was that kind of moment? What happened? Did you did you feel it was happening coming? What? The, no, the... it was totally out of the blue. Because we'd got a second session based on the first session, you know, and uh, I think yeah, no, no, none of those. Those are the things about being in bands. You know, you got to to write out. No, it was it was absolutely devastating. Um, but looking back, you know what they they morphed into. Um, I could see what that they wanted to be. They wanted to be something else. And I think when they finally heard me on the, uh, you know, ex- finally exposed, it's not. I don't think it's what they wanted, but. Nevertheless, I think that um, it was a great combination, this very sort of light female voice and the, and the saxophone and everything. And, uh, and and with this band that was tight and, and great, it was actually a really nice combination. But I think, you know, maybe also people marching through the studio um, sort of eyeing up the situation was a bit unnerving because I think that, this is the thing that I've sort of come to understand being the female front person in a band, I think can be a bit unnerving for any band, I think, maybe, because the industry is often wanting to sort of isolate the girl in some way or sort of, uh, that was my experience anyway. Yes. Um, you know, I don't know if you... You know what I mean? Yeah, I think. Well, I, I definitely think the singer becomes it. It becomes difficult for the singer, especially if the singer hasn't written the music and and done the lyrics and the the sort of weird bass player has, but no one cares about them in interviews. And I think that dynamic, and also in yes. you know in forty years ago and beyond, I mean women in music had a really hard time. That's why I'm always amazed that Kate Bush got. She obviously had a very good protection around her not to have yeah. been 
been sort of chewed up, but her brother was in the band. And I think she had a lot of older people like Dave Gilmore from Pink Floyd. And they probably gave her quite a bit of protection. Otherwise, she'd have ended up like another person like Sinead O'Connell. O'Connell. Well, that was the thing that was quite that was very I think I was it wasn't conscious. It was. But I think that was always in the back of my mind that um, I would need I wanted protection in some way. And that was actually you know, kind of went through the whole thing, um, was was actually behind some of the decisions I made um, to, to, to be in bands or um, that there would be some kind of protector. Yes. Uh, kind of protection. Because, you, because you also then record another song, don't you? Or, or you appear again on the internet with a track which was recorded in April 83. And this is kind of Flying Pig Studio, Norwich Archives. Um, oh, you found those, yeah. Well, after that, you see, so after that, after after getting fired, because they wanted a more boy, they wanted more more politics, um, and they wanted a, a, a saxophone player that was more kind of jazz, or I, I'm not sure exactly, but um, I then did recorded some songs with the bass player, the fretless bass player, and so I was starting to write the whole music myself. And this was the freedom that you were getting with four tracks and with the, you know, with the keyboards at the time that you could do the whole lot and you could write your own songs and, and pull people in. And so, so that was, uh, I, I did that. Um, and then I did, I had a guy, uh, I was at, at UEA with a guy from school and, um, it's the, the uh, and then we, we kind of became, he became friends with my, uh, the guy was uh, my partner. And he said, you know, why don't you two play? And this guy was a keyboardist. And, you know, we had, um, I think our influences were people like Eric Satie and things like that. You know, that was very kind oh, of, that, yes. very fair, very minimal, you know, that you could get away with very little. And so, yes, yeah, so we recorded these songs and, um, uh, sent him out and we got some uh, we got response from London records on those and um but I I can still um and my sort of interest in film was coming in in those songs uh, postcard with a view in the in the in the break in the middle there were sort of extracts from film film soundtracks um you know and you've got to remember Laurie Anderson came out with those Superman yes. Yeah, which I loved, which I absolutely loved. And, you know, you, that told me that you could do anything that you wanted at that point. I mean, that was that was a, that was a song that came out of nowhere, wasn't it? And how that's... No, absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, no one would think that would be a hit. But then when you heard it, it's still remembered 40 years later, isn't it? And yeah, it's still... that was a big thing, you know, that kind of idea of building in a script into your, into your songs. Yes. And... And also having repetitive, um, they call them pedals, but um, this is a song that we did. I still love the called Ether, which just goes on for about, I don't know, 50 minutes or whatever, but it's just got a pedal, then you, uh, which is a repeated phrase. And then you bring in different elements, a saxophone for a short bit, and it's very sort of hypnotic. And um, I love that, you know, and the, the art of noise had um, music like that, which was very minimal, often very, very repetitive. Um, if you remember yes. at the time. So I guess those those kinds of things were filtering in. Um, so, yeah. 
So then um, I, with, with this recording, you've got yourself, there's Steve Thomas, and then there's more info needed, UEA band question mark. So was it was it just the three of you or did someone just kind of randomly make these other names up? No, it was the two of us with the fretless bass player from Juju. Right. It was the two of us. It, there actually is, a, he's that guy, the flying pig, has his own um, thing on YouTube. So it's all on there. He's posted it up on there, I found. Right. Gosh, it's exciting. Uh, so then yeah. when you, you finished university about, was it 84 then by this stage? Uh, maybe 83 or something. No, yeah. I, do you know what? I took a year out and went and did performance arts in London for a year. And then did I, I did... Um, and we did did some shows through that. And then I decided that I'd come back and just finish off and get the degree, make my family happy, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then take off. But in the meantime, what I was doing was, you know, I just wanted adventure. I was very free. And I was going over to Amsterdam and I was playing music there, um, busking and playing it in museums and um, and living on a houseboat. So that I was also doing that. Uh, you know, in the breaks from UEA. So playing playing music that way and doing, um, I was getting very influenced by by folk songs, by Irish music, uh, particularly while I was at UEA and I used to go to pubs. Right. And, uh, and you know, because Steel Ice Band came in and that was a big thing. Do you remember in the 70s? Oh, yeah, Maddie Pryor. We loved her um, yeah. all around oh, my hat. Oh, Blacksmith ported me nine months and better. You know, I love those songs. But you went to the Golden Star Pub and, and embraced folk music. Did you embrace Morris dancing as well? No, 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 no. We weren't <laughs> Morris dancing, though. There was a pub called the Warwick. Uh, no, no, no. I can't remember what it was called, but it had upstairs. It was smoky. It was intense. They had the house band, and then people would get up and sing. Yes. And that uh called uh, Off the Unthanked Road up. Uh, the Denmark, was it, or something like that? Anyway, there were quite a few pubs. I met Irish players, banjo players, and and played with them and went and went a lot. And I liked that whole thing of which stuck with me rather rather than blues. It's called modal, you know, modal music, very open harmonies, slightly sort of discordant um, yes. sort of harmonies. And I like that kind of crushing, keening sound. So that was a um a big influence. Um, for later on and so I was yeah I was just doing that and uh, and then what happened oh and then I nothing sort of happened for a while um, I think the guy with those songs that we did in the flying pig he went off to Japan so when we got interest on that um, he'd gone right. so um, I thought well Okay, and I was just having adventures in Amsterdam, um, um, living in a fire station, or doing a lot of sort of modelling for artists and people, a lot of photography. People taking photographs. Were, um, were you living in sort of squats and and places like this and hanging uh, out in interesting well, was, anarcho was, anarcho anarchists, sort of punks and people like that, or was no. that? No, I wasn't in it with any particular group. It was just me and my and, and my mates or anybody that I found. Um, I did I did join a band that was a what were they called? I can't remember the name, 
they call themselves something punk. And we played in a, in a very sort of staid seaside town in, in Holland and got spat at. And uh, one of the guys was in love with a Polish trapeze artist. So we followed the circus for a while to satisfy his... Uh, but that was all living on this houseboat. Yes. Which I, which I got by... Um, they took. Uh, they wanted to take photographs of me. They were feminists, and they were so I agreed to have these photographs taken. They said, "Oh well, for their exhibition, looking angry in my Holocaust costume." And then they said, "Oh well, you can live. You can, we'd like you to stay on this boat because we're going to go off for about six months or something." So, and that was right on the edge of the red light district. Right. And so I was always going through the red light district, and uh, then a guy sort of hired me to play in his coffee shop and he'd been to school with all of these girls from the red light district so we used to walk around and talk to them and he'd say hello and because they sat in the windows at the time yes <laughs> sorry am i bad basically <laughs> no no it's it's a very bohemian life and and, and obviously you know you, you know it's it's what you people did in the 80s didn't they sort of drifting I, quite a lot you know being yeah. quite sophisticated and cool i mean there was then you know a lot of a lot of french cinema coming along there was you know films like mm. betty blue and diva oh. and, and those betty those now we're talking yeah that soundtrack was on repeat Absolutely. i know because you mentioned eric Satie, and i thought oh yes oh, you yeah. must have then gone to the kind oh, of the space yeah. spatial qualities of betty Benique, blue yeah uh Benique's, uh this moon in the gutter all of those great great soundtracks your yeah, soundtracks film soundtracks were really important uh to me and uh nine and a half weeks um oh, yeah. The, yeah i mean uh, because the eurythmics when they came out there all you know pretenders blondie that was kind of more my my area more what i was you know being influenced by i'd say uh you know there's the kate bush thing where you could go up into the stratosphere and have strange voices and then there was this you know the sort of the power woman at the front of the uh, of the band, and you know the song in Nine and a Half Weeks. I can hear the sound of the underground train. Just so haunting and so minimal. You know, I loved, I loved yes. all that. So, so, did you then have a synth pop duo as well? Was that yeah? This period? Well, that so was it's... the flying the flying pig thing. Was really a synth pop duo, but then he came back from Japan. And um, was this postcard with a view black and red ether? Was this part of that period? That was that was the flying pigs one. And you do was... look incredibly sophisticated on these photographs, don't you? Oh well, that you know, I mean, that's the bedroom thing and practicing the Lauren Hutton, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, all those seventies, all those books that my my mother got, you know, and all those magazines. You just got it down to a T, you know. How you, I used, you know, practice. I used to practice in front of the, the when I was supposed to be doing my homework. I used to practice in front of the the mirror, you know, the looks and the various how you yeah. pull that off. Right, my God, I, I know. Pull that up. <laughs> I could go, I could do a course. I know exactly how you do it. Anyone needs to know, just come and talk. Come and ask. I'll show you how it's done. Yes. Well, there, yeah. there is that, and and a sort of Evelyn Wall is it Evelyn Wall that kind of bride's head revisited sort of vibe to your partner or chap. Oh, those. Yeah, those were done at school. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
Oh, you're looking at the, the photographs, are you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, that was so, I was so, I mean, in terms of photographs, I loved, I just loved that. Um, when I was living in that house, it was a, so after the, the Newcastle thing, up in Newcastle, I, I was running away and I ended up, um, it was always, you know, I was never part of a group. I was just forging my own, my own way, taking enormous risks. But I, I decided to leave Norwich because I had very clearly in my mind that, um, you know, because I, I stayed on afterwards, the, the people I was around wanted to stay there. And I, I, I didn't have that idea for myself. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go up to Newcastle and then I'm going to go to London and then I'm going to go to America. And I, I had no clue how that was going to happen. No, no clue. So I went up to you. I, I stopped off at Liverpool to check that out. And I thought had nothing, no money. I just had what I had on my back. Um, I had my flute, my saxophone, and that was it. Change of knickers. <laughs> that was it. So I, but I end up in Newcastle all because I heard, uh, because someone I knew at the time used to do the accent all the time was really really good at it his father was a Geordie and I just thought that sounds a great place I'm going to go there so I went there and I thought I ended up um I went to uh, the Dole the unemployed uh you know whatever that was the office yes. and I got nowhere to live I've got nowhere to go I'm on the run <laughs> and they said well we've got this place for you well it had turned out to be um on man alive or man in action do you ever remember those documentary programs for mm. being a brothel oh right no <laughs> so, there i was i mean that's a whole other story i, I gotta get out of here and fast there's a woman who lived under the stairs who was trying to conscript me into <laughs> making a different kind of living so i put an ad i went into the kind of fanciest part of um Newcastle, which was Jasmine, and there was like a whole food thing. And I put it, I said I was a dance student. I thought right. that would be acceptable. I didn't want to say I was running away from it from it all. And so I managed to get a place to live and I took a job in a pub. And that's when I met the next guy who um was a singer, and he was a Tony Curtis lookalike, and that's how he was making some money as well as working in the pub. And he had a voice like Alison Moye or the Erasure guy. It was a very, oh, yes. powerful, very powerful voice. And so I said, well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, doing stuff. And um, so we got together, but he was mainly that he was in the driving seat of that while I was sort of taking stock of things. But we ended up doing these shows, which were kind of massive um multi you know dimensional we had uh chinese dragons we had legions of dancers we had uh, a whole thing it was a kind of like a busby barclay extravaganza um with this guy with loads of costumes and we were doing working men's clubs <laughs> were you doing was this your psychotic cocktail songs cabaret with a dark twist was that a bit later oh, well yeah, I'm, I'm skipping out a whole bunch of things. When did that happen? That happened later. No, this was, um, I don't know if you're going to see that online anywhere, because that was more his music. I wrote a few songs 
Um, but he was really in the driving seat of that. And I was more more doing backup singing. Right. And but we went down to the Hippodrome and we came up through the, the floor, the rhythm. Oh, the Great Yarmouth Hippodrome. No, London. Oh, here, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> So that was it. I mean, I was heading down, and so and we. I I made a music video up there because I was into it. I liked Louise Brooks. I loved her, and I liked the films Pandora, Pandora's Box. Oh my God! Yes. So I played her like a blonde version in a sort of silent movie um, video that we made through Newcastle Tech. Was it? Um, I, we put an ad up or something, and. They had a film course, and so people, you know, and the guy who was running that was some kind of, he'd been involved in the BBC, I can't remember, in TV. Anyway, he shot the film, and um, I wrote it and uh, and was in it, and that was my music video. And we made a few videos up there which involved throwing mannequins off the uh, Titan Bridge or whatever. Yes. It, it stuff up there. So was that, I know I keep asking you questions, is that yeah. GG Goose, which does the, the green Go-go overcoat? Goose. No, that was afterwards. Right. Was afterwards. So then then I thought, I said, well, I, I'm not going to stay up in Newcastle. I'm going to make my way down to London. And I had a mate from Norwich who was in a house which was called a cooperative house. Do you remember? Oh, that? yes. Oh, God, cooperative houses and whole food shops and all that. You know, it was a beautiful kind of – there was a period – that was quite political during that mid to late 80s, wasn't there? Because there was the Red Wedge movement and, yes. you know, the Socialist Workers' Party, and then there was the Anti-Poll Tax League. So you yes. didn't want to be part of it. You know, one was going to get affected. And Thatcherism was going quite rampant at this stage, yes. wasn't it? Yes. And um, and so there was a for me, you know, because John Peel played a massive part in, and uh, you know, in my life during the eighties and the nineties. Um, there was that sense of of kind of there was definitely a, a left and there was a right, wasn't there? In yeah. in in music culture yeah. and a lot of things. And I yeah. do remember that because I love bands like the Smiths and and all these kind of indie bands. But then he would always play things like the Bundu Boys from Africa or Bulgarian yeah. folk music or early rap music from America, which I found kind of fascinating, yes. or, or, you know, Napalm Death and stuff like that. So you'd always hear yes. the most un- unusual things on the John Peel show. So, um, yes. yeah, yes. so so cooperatives, because we were all, we uh, all had those kind of dreams, didn't we, that we could share in a house with lots of other people. I, and not one... I did. I did not. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> No, you dreamed of, of, of sort no, of no. I mean, this was some kind of link. I remember going because I I've written a I've written a book, a novel, where I'm talking about this, and I'm talking about music, and uh, it's called Orange Peel, and it's uh, on Amazon. It's and it's just about being in this that period of uh, and being in this cooperative house, and just sort of God, I don't want to be on these committees and sort of grinding away, and I don't understand what's so political about you know, the fact that the roof needs to be fixed. And I just didn't, you know, I didn't really um, understand it. I just was, you know, focused on the music. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and it's, I, I've written about that in the, through the character of this book. Um, and so, but I was in this house and a lot of people weren't really politically motivated in the house. It was, you know, it was, a, it was, 
to between Finsbury Park and Crouch End, and it was a big old, big old house. And it was just great to be able to live there, enormous garden, and do up your own room and just go out into the world because it wasn't, you know, there wasn't much to pay in rent. And then you had the enterprise scheme. Yes, which, the enterprise allowance scheme, which was all yeah. very good for our creative arts, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, all of that, the doll, all of that allowed you to really, you know, and I worked. Uh, we created a little studio. The guy came back from Japan. And um, so that's the Guga Goose thing and era. And uh, he eventually got a room in the house. And we had this little room, which we just made into a studio. I remember going out and getting a Roland D50 and this thing could play anything. And um, and yeah, we he and I, I wrote uh, the psychotic cocktail songs. We started off doing an, another thing in coffee shops. And then this was in art centers. Um, um, you know, sort of dress, dressing up and being psychotic and <laughs> and disturbing and um, pushing people to the edge to think, you know, is she okay? And then I'm not sure. I like <laughs> like living on, you know, that kind of edge. And then, um, and just trying to get a deal, trying to get a record deal was was always the thing. Yes. And take- around and and did you get much interest at that stage because there was a lot of record labels there was these sort of indie labels which like yeah. rough tra- rough trade and yeah the glass label and then you had all the mainstream did it, i mean people must have seen you and thought there is we could mold shape no I, I don't think i was cool enough i i i i didn't sort of fit into any particular i mean we did we did get interest that was i think that was the time when we got interest in deco or london records i'm not sure when but yes um but i would just i would show up in places i don't and i they said but have you looked into the record company do you know what we do and i go ah what do you like what i've done (laughs) (laughs) right yes (laughs) i didn't you know i wasn't I wasn't cool. I mean, I didn't know about music in the way that you knew about it. That came much later when I started putting the pieces together. Right. I just wanted to write. I just wanted to sing. I wanted to perform and I wanted to wear great stuff. And, um, you know, and I just, uh, and also what was behind was the idea of, you know, maybe this, I can sidestep the auditioning process if I make this, and this is in the book, you know, it's so sweet, so innocent. You got to go back to that. If I do this, if I become known as in this uh, for my music, and then maybe I get a chance to act as well, you know. And she says this in the book, and then I'll go into politics and I'll wear a really lovely suit, and then I'll change the world. You know, <laughs> I was just thinking like that, um, and. Uh, you know, just sort of drifting around and encountering people um, who were starting to give me um, more of an education about about music. There was a guy who I met through the NME because I was I was now advertising for people in the NME and the Melody Maker. You know, people to and meeting all these musicians through that. Right. Was this the late eighties? Now. Yeah. So this mid, was kind of because I suppose there's a bit of a musical shift. You know, we had that. You know, roughly. The, the sort of the punk period, then new romantic, then we had, yeah. yes, and then the indie world with the Smiths, but then you had yeah. Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran, yes. 
and yes. all that kind of world. But then as as the 80s progressed, there was a sort of a shift with the next generation coming through, the next 16 to 18 year olds. And, you know, yeah. the ecstasy world started to appear yeah. and then dance music yeah. and and all those bands that I loved started breaking up and having personal issues. Yes. And, then, and then as we trucked towards the 90s, there was a whole scene coming from Seattle as well as from Manchester. And you yes. know, people wanted to slightly yes. get themselves out of, you know, well, was, because got- the, if you remember the early 80s, you know, Thatcher got in, then we had the Falkland War, then we had the Miners' Strike, then we had Greenham Common, there was Chernobyl. So there was, a, there was a lot of struggle, and, and we did think it yeah. was all going to end in nuclear war, didn't we? In about yes, you know. so yeah. so, but then it's like, oh, perhaps we're not going to die in a nuclear war. Then we had Chernobyl, and it's like, oh, close, and then and then we sort of you know got got going again. So as as we yeah. progressed towards the nineties, what were you? Where were you heading then? Well, I was um, in the states. Oh, you'd made your, your, you'd flown. So I, yeah, I mean, I was thinking, I was seeing all that, that change that was going on and, um, you know, looking at Enemy and Melody Maker. And I just thought, well, you know, I wasn't an avid, I didn't want to get, you know, Melody Maker and Enemy was a very academic view of music. If you think about very, very kind of a closed world very, very judgmental. I mean, that was the backdrop of the British music scene was who was cool and who wasn't, who was, um, you know, heads. There's uh, a lot of judgment. Do you remember that being the Oh, case? yes. I mean, well, yes. I mean, part of that. Because people, people read back on those reviews from the 70s and 80s and, you know, some horrid things that people wrote and some, you know, careers that got sort of savage. And there's a lot of se- there was a lot of sexism because mostly it was men writing this stuff who were, you know, thinking that they were more important than anybody. So, you know, yeah. there's a lot of embarrassment when people look back at that. Um, and they made know. and broke careers, didn't they, really? They did. It was just they... uh, very quick. So they had a lot, had a lot of power. So how did so you go I, from sort of Norwich, Newcastle, London, then to America? Well, so uh, what was going on? So we were writing all of this stuff, doing these, um, taking it round to record companies. Did you had you uh, recorded this the, the two tracks, Bed and the Little Mermaid? Had they been written in London? Yeah, I was all doing those, yeah, by myself and getting just musicians coming in from 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 you know the the classified ads. I'd also what else was I doing? So what happened was that I was down getting my hair done, which you could get done for free by students in Vidal Sassoon on Bond Street. So, um, you know, and I was I was knew a lot of people who were, you know, in the gay scene and, um, you know, that's a very journalists and writers and um so that that kind of world was all going on and um um right you know doing some writing with that and always had a connection with that that world as 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 a performer how can you not and so that was kind of the backdrop was you know people coming out and and talking about themselves and their lives and very kind of there wasn't a very, I mean, the late 80s had this eroticism, you know, I mean, all the 80s, if you think about that, had that eroticism, you know, films like Nine and a Half Weeks, um, us going to a lot of the S&M clubs, um, sort of just for fun, just for the hell of it. Um, so it was an interesting underground time. 
in London at that time as well. Um, going to clubs, um, just uh, very freewheeling. Um, and then, of course, they, you know, they had you had the AIDS terror. So yes. that was kind of the backdrop of all of that, you know. And um, so, yeah, I knew about all of that, was, was uh, knew the, these worlds and was just, you know, going into all kinds of areas. Heaven was a world. Um, so, so that was kind of, and then, so there I am getting my hair and I come out and I'm sitting in a coffee shop in Bond Street. And this guy's making his way towards me. And I think, oh, please don't sit next to me. Oh, I guess there's nowhere else to sit. Well, he turned out to be a Frenchman living in Florida. So I thought, well, you know, I'll sort of, I guess, you know, you were at a loose end. The people have stood you up that you were supposed to see. And he was an Anglophile. And I said, well, why don't you come and see? I wasn't doing the Psychotic Cocktails songs at the time. I said, well, I live in this crazy, really interesting house. Um, you know, we had... There were leaks everywhere, so we had pans and pots to catch leaks and everything. And it was like a monster's house. And we all had our gas stoves that were the mobile ones that you just kept powered everything up. I don't think they're allowed now. Maybe they are. But uh, that was what heated us. The, you know, the, the kitchen was always freezing. But the house became very communal. People were very locked off from each other. And London was like that. You know, you can, you can be very lonely in a big place but I remember getting everybody together and we became and one was a photographer I said oh why don't you take photographs of me I'd love to have my photographs done and then I knew people and um, other photographers I was always encountering photographers I'd like to take some photographs of me so that was why there's a whole <laughs> wealth of, of um, those photographs and uh Anyway, so I said, well, why don't you come back to this house? You know, I knew a lot, a lot of people there. He was in a very, very smart pink suit, you know, very, very pristine, very well turned out, this guy. I thought, let's let's show him this other side to life in this house. And I, I, I said, well, why don't I do you some songs if you like music? I'll do you some songs of this psychotic cocktail song. And he said, I will get you a record deal in America. And I said, okay. <laughs> it was this Anyway, the long and the short of it was he did. So <laughs> he was a, a real he was a realtor. So you know, nothing really. I don't. I don't think anything I can describe really went according to some kind of plan or some particular. And he did. Now he didn't really tell me the whole thing about this label, but um, this is black. Had, is this is black? Black and blue. Black, black and blue. blue. Have yeah. you heard of them? Well, I've only just come across them and just seen some of this sort of strange bands that are also on the label. What, because um, of me, you mean? You didn't know know them prior? No, I'll have to say no. no. Oh, that's, you don't. You don't. don't. They're infamous. Oh, my God. Well, if you talk to a lot of people in the States, they all know. They go, really? Um, yeah. I thought about that guy. Ah, where do you begin with, with the label? I wondered why I was on the label. There was a, there was a reason explained to me why I was. But looking back, I realized why I was on this label. You'd have to know about Gigi Allen, um, and he's maybe something that uh, your listeners need to just look into. He was, uh, yeah. Um, was I, was I, he the, was he the label? Because I've I've read a comment about this guy, the loathsome. I mean, it, it seems like. <laughs> 
And, you know, he's, he, he, <laughs> yes, he was born Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, so, so who, how oh, do, would you do? I went into this whole world, you know, this, this was the next world that I went into. And I, I, I wonder why, but when I think back, you know, my sister, my autistic sister, actually that all kind of ties in, you know, because I sort of understood or had tolerance. You know, my autistic sister, I, I grew up meeting many different kinds of people, you know, at that time. She was often in big institutions and you'd go and you'd find all kinds of different people. So I, I think wired into me and wired anyway was always a sort of... Um, sort of understanding of people at the extreme you know people who lived at the extreme my sister was in a way at her own extremes she had her own extremes so this so maybe it was no accident that I that I was on this label but if you're listening to the music it's uh it's an extraordinary sort of departure for for the for the label but so there I was um I I now was on my own I made that album in my bedroom more or less in that tiny little studio before people made albums in their bedrooms and I think that's maybe why that album actually resurfaced after all these years it's called um Blue Nouveau Darkness in Me I was given yes. the, the name of the band and I was given the name of the type the, the title of the album I said right go go and write you know they were sort of Svengali's <laughs> trying to construct and I gave away all the rights to that album oh no they wanted all the rights and you know you sort of say to yourself well I think I'm I think I decided I sort of did a deal with myself well I'll maybe this will get me to to the states and I I, I wanted to go to the states because I think I wanted to get away from the enemy and the melody made I saw America as being just a whole different, you know, maybe more tolerant, maybe less judgmental, maybe less niche, less cliquey than than Britain at that time. And I remember thinking, oh, I just want to go and and I've done English and American studies at at, at Norwich University, and my partner at the time he was doing the film, and that was what I was most interested in was going was looking at American films and. So American culture was really important and um, understanding the American art scene was out, out there. So, uh, yeah, that was my way to get myself out there. It took a kind of a year. I, I, I wrote the album. I kept thinking with the album, every song I, I sent them. And um, <clears throat> I'd gone to get my, the people I worked with said, you know, you've got to have singing lessons. The guy who looks like Evelyn, the Evelyn Moore character. Yes. You gotta go. So I went to Tony DeBrett, who apparently tried to get Johnny Light, Johnny Rotten to sing. Oh yes. Um, right? So he and apparently he just sat in the corner and refused his record label had. I mean, why they did that to him, I don't know. But uh, so there there was all of you know, there were all these exercises, which I gamely did. But I so secretly admired the fact that Johnny Rotten just refused to cooperate. And I wished I had that spirit. But um, so, and then her son, he actually sort of engineered that little album that I did, which I did on a an eight track. In oh, is my this, is this Peter Yarmouth? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny hearing that name come out of your mouth. 
Pimpiana. <laughs> oh, so he's he's the co he's the co-owner of Black and Blue Records. Now, yeah, at the time it was he's gone into partnership with someone else. Yeah. So, uh, but at the time he had another partner who died, who was the one who liked me and so I wanted to sign me, who died of diabetes, not before I even, not long after I'd gone out to the States. Mm. So I did that first album and I, you know, that's, that's had a, you know, that was discovered, this album. Did you know that? Have you, have you no, read it? I, no, I haven't read about the album that yeah. much. So it's been rediscovered. So it's doing quite well. Yeah, well, this is the strange thing about it. Yeah, this is just, it, it has surfaced. I think there's an 80s revival, it's partly the, it. Well, yes, there's a lot There's a lot coming up from the 80s at the moment. So you yeah. don't own any of the publishing, any of the rights of, of it at all? No. God, so you've never had a royalty check? No. Um, it's one of those things where... Yeah, why why do you do that? I I made I think I thought well look you know I'll, I'll get to the states and this album it's my first album how good could it be you know how how good could this album be and I'm writing everything I'm doing everything and the last time I'd done everything was after Juju broke up and I you know done those things in my my bedroom with the you know the the bass player but here I was you know I mean this was really what you'd call a bedroom album really this this darkness in me and i i made it and i got musicians to arrive through the enemy or the melody maker or whatever simon fursby who was in the house of love came and played you know this whole you'd have to read this in the novel because it gets into all kinds of bizarre things which is probably best kept in the novel um but um and, you know, I was just writing, and because it didn't have any sort of thematic continuity to it, because I liked, you know, different songs, so I was just trying to write a different song with each song. It's like, well, why don't I go over here? Why don't I try this? Why don't I do this? And um, I think the song that people have liked is the Obscurity, which is the talking song, and people have made videos of it. Anyway, so out I go. I've made that album. And so I go to the States. I had worked on newer music with a guy I'd met through Enemy who was at Cambridge University and he used to come down. And I moved out of that courthouse and it's now had a flat, which was a couple of roads away. And he would come down and he had this kind of raw guitar sound. He had, you know, he could have that English folk thing in yes. very percussive. And I just started putting song words over that and songs over that and forming them into into songs and I had that as a kind of rough template and I went out I mean I love to find that guy Mark um and I went out to because he didn't want to come out with me I said we could go to the states got this deal don't you want to come you know but people had girlfriends they had lives and you know what was his what was his surname Mark I don't know I don't know he was this guy who would show up who would sleep on my floor and help me even soundproof the little room. Poor guy, poor guy. And put, laid down these tracks. And, um, but then, you know, he sort of disappeared. He did his final, I'd, I'd love to know what he was, you know, some of these people I've met, what they're up to and what they did. Yes. But I took, but I took those rough, you know, four track 
it was never an eight track. It was always a four track. And I had an eight four track. It was I had a reel to reel at one time, but um, late and I took those and I went to the states. I'd already done the first album. I said I want to do these songs now, which were much more because the Seattle sound, the Nirvana thing was coming out, and I wanted to be. I wanted loud, and I'd also been very influenced by Le Voix de Monsieur Bulgar, that that voice. You know, that guttural voice that they yes. have. And I thought, that's the voice I'm going to use so I can top over the band so people can hear me. And so it's a, it's a, it's a chest voice that you push up into your head. Yes. And, you know, ah, that sounds, that kind of harsher sound. So I was getting that kind of sound. And, um, and so I arrived and in the middle of nowhere, this guy, Peter Yarmouth meets, he's got, he's got all my, He's got these jackets with all my my pictures on there and my name, the name of the band, the hats. It was pure Americana. I thought, wow, where where have I? You know, we're driving. I'm seeing Reading. I'm seeing all these names. This is the East Coast. This is Massachusetts and Rhode Island and all around. Just so kind of drop parachuted in, and. Um, so and then he said, "Well, we've got this band for you. Um, they'll they'll play." Met them, and um, and then when it kind of evolved onto, I'm trying to make this short. So it evolved onto another set of band people who the guitarist knew, and that's then we recorded, we recorded the second album. And these these players were just great, you know. And I don't, I've been very very lucky, sort of as inexperienced as I was. So this I, is I, so your second album, which comes out in well, it's two thousand and eight. This is ten years after. Well, yeah, because I didn't want to give all my rights away. I didn't want to sign any. Um, so I'm now we're we're on the East Coast. We've we've recorded the album, and which was a very different. This was now in a proper studio. It was a very different experience from doing the John Peel session. I thought it might be like, oh, this was doing tracks over and over and over again until I was crawling up the walls, begging for mercy. Please don't make me sing my life. Yeah. Please. I have no voice left. And so what um, what happened? There's quite a gap between 1990 and 2008. So do you are you still uh, playing? It didn't get released because it just we just sat on it and um oh so you recorded that second album quite soon it didn't after get released. it didn't get released because there was a contract we i the, the the guitarist was from la so i said uh you know i want to go out to la i don't i don't want to be here i want to go where it's warmer and and where where there is i just i want to go to los angeles and he was from there so originally so um we had a place to stay initially so we were we were there and then we we formed a band but we had these recordings and um is this tom tom who's, who's tom? the who's the guitarist guitarist was minx the jinx minx mario right yeah you've got to skip ahead you're not keeping up david i know i'm <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just on the second album. You've got a guitarist called Minx the. But he, yes. You see, I can't remember what he's listed as. There was an EP that we put out. Uh, Mario Tremaine or Mario Middleton. He had various names because he had came from an interesting background. His there's a, was there's, a, there's a producer called Mario Tremaine. Yes, there we are. He was right. the guitarist. 
And you, oh, right. So there was another guitarist called Tom who's on keyboards on this second album. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yes. Played, yes, there's a bunch of people played on that. Yes, Tom, sorry, Tom D'Agostino, yes. There you go. Was, yes, we were, he was the owner of the Chainsaw uh, workshop that we rehearsed in. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'm trying to, so we get to, yeah, we get to LA. So we now have our own band. So now we're playing the strip, we're playing the whole thing. We're doing the whole LA thing now. We played the first Coachella ever. We played the Troubadour, all of those things. We had a regular gig um, on the Strip that we would play, you know, practically every weekend, I think, as, as far as my memory goes. And there was a dance club upstairs, and then we'd, everybody would come down and see us play. We did a lot of stage props. We did a, a lot of different things. And... Um, so and then we played also the Guns and we played the Guns and Roses. Uh, Guns and Ro the my the drummer was Swedish, and he happened to know the Guns and Roses drummer who was also Swedish. Right. So we played his club quite a bit. And um, so were you influenced yeah. by that American sort of hard rock hair metal? No, not at all. God no. But you're uh, in LA in the nineties. This is quite of yeah. quite an excessive sex drugs and rock and roll world here isn't it yeah yeah i know well you know members of the band worked in a strip club and i would often go so you know i saw that whole side of life um even did a strip myself one night <laughs> um so it, it was the rainbow remember going to the rainbow remember the guy coming out of the rainbow going you've got it you were whatever it is you've got it <laughs> was what, what did you sort of see people like River Phoenix and all these kind of cat you know characters that those clubs slowly destroying themselves? Well, that was in the band. Yeah, that was a that was a, an awakening to me. Um, yeah, I didn't know quite what I was getting into. You know, I, as I've described to you, my world was sort of separated off from. I mean, I'd had. You know, some experience of that. I mean, London had uh, elements of that, you know, the whole poppers scene and the whole, that whole thing. Um, but I was very much on the fringes and now I was kind of in the middle of it all. So, yeah, the band had those elements. I mean, not, not, not all of them. Um, how long did yeah. the band, how long did your band last because you've got sort of 1990 the first album then the second album's recorded but doesn't get released but you're playing yeah. live a lot how how many years is the band together uh, about four, uh six years or so five six years something like that early, okay. early, early um 90s right yeah. broke up in 95 96 something like that maybe 97 right. i find it difficult to remember or yeah so yeah we were in la just playing, um, rehearsing, <clears throat> um, uh, yeah, interesting, interesting world, all the jobs, I'm thinking about all the jobs that I did, um, it's, it's a hard thing, you know, you think about bands, you're living with a lot of uncertainty, 
and it's hard to keep yourself going. And I think what I know now is that you you just stay there and it, something's going to break. Something will open. You know, opportunity, opportunities come, things happen. You've got to sort of stay. When I think about the press, I think I had that very British aloof thing. It was, it was you know, it was a big culture shock moving to the States, um, living there. I thought it was going to be like England with an accent, but it's not. It's very, very different. The cult, you've got to get, you've got to understand people. You've got to know what the culture's about and what they're, what they're referring to. It's, it's not, you know, little Britain anymore. It's, it's a much bigger world. And I couldn't quite understand how it really was freer and that um, you didn't have to judge yourself so hard. I mean, we had people who followed us and fans. We had press who liked us a lot. I didn't really know to relax and just sort of get to know them for them to get to know me. Um, and it was only, you know, because I lived in the States for over 20 years. Yes. Um, but I went into the film aspect after and I'm writing books after, after the music. When the music broke up, I was, you know, very devastated because I'd spent, put so much energy and into that. But I, and I think that when it when it broke up, and it was a, there were a lot of reasons for that. Which uh, you know, if you've ever watched the behind the music, I mean, I watched all of those avidly. Because oh, yes, 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 yes. Tight little thing, and all of these pressures, and you've got to write the music. You've got to get yourself there. It's a lot to handle. We had, we did the the fact that the album came out that much later was because um, I don't know how this guy, but it was. You remember a band called Bread? Yes. There's a lead singer called David Gates. His son, Craig Gates, was a music was an attorney. I think he was a music attorney. Anyway, and he advised us and he said, You don't want to sign this contract and this is what you need to do. And he just helped us out pro bono, you know. Um, and he came and um looked at us and I think sort of shopped around for a deal for us for a while. Um a very different life out there. Exciting. What an adventure. What a complete adventure. Yes. Yeah, 20 years. So when the band broke up, did you come, mm -hmm. did you then stay in America for that yeah. period? And just, yeah. and how did you reinvent yourself at that stage? Well, you know, I don't know why I didn't just form another band, but things were starting to catch up with me and I, I needed to start sorting things out um, in my, things that happened to me in my childhood. I started writing and um, so I started writing books and wasn't interested in, you know, I couldn't listen to music. I just didn't want to deal with music. And I thought, that's it. I'm finished. But then I, you know, I wrote a book and then I decided I, I was doing background in movies. Uh, I'd done a bunch I had different jobs, you know, like everybody else, waiting tables, coffee shops, uh, temping anything, you know, soul destroying stuff to do, but everybody is doing it out there. And I think the thing about Los Angeles is that you have this sense that everybody's on the same track as you, everybody's um, doing the same thing. And and I thought I'd do the background thing just to see if, if acting was what I wanted to pick up again and what a world that is, you know, all these beautiful girls coming from small town America and, and just in this sea of competing with each other and trying to 
you know, that, that whole world. What, what a fascinating world. Uh, also very boring, being on film sets is incredibly boring. Um, but, uh, and then I decided I'd make my own little film, you know, and rather than go out and get funding because I would have complete control. And I was going back really to that first album idea of making music in my bedroom, you know, now make a film in my bedroom, which is what I literally did. I made a film in my bedroom. I played all the parts and it was based on the novel, which is all about music, the struggle, the dream and the, the struggle and how you're going to navigate these the, the sharks and the waters, choppy waters and um, and um, and then I started writing the soundtrack for that. And so I was suddenly writing music again um, for the soundtrack and making it in my bedroom again. Nice. And playing it all, doing it all myself. So, yeah, I love that soundtrack. And, but becoming more experimental, because when the band broke, I really started looking into just how, you know, putting music into context, stuff I, I can tell that you know um, growing up more than I would ever have done. Um, but I just, you know, started understanding and mu musicians and the history of, of, of rock pop music and where it all came from and, and all these different figures. Um, so I, 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 I did that. I put it all, all the pieces of the puzzle together. And, uh, but I became, you know, I was getting more in interested in all kinds of, different kinds of music and I am interested, but I still love the bubble gum, the, the, the sweet, you know, um, pop stuff still to this day. Um, yes, yeah. I know. It's a perfect form. So, so, so that's you know, twenty years. That's two thousand. So, in two thousand, did you then? Actually, I might have got my dates wrong now. Two thousand. So, did you? When did you come back to the UK? I came back um, twenty twelve. Twenty twelve, right? Yeah. So, so you, you did a lot of different sort of artistic. Things. So, when did you write the book? Two thousand. Right, that's Orange Peel. Yeah. And then you made a film about of it and did a soundtrack yeah. as well, right? Yeah, and I did a I did a little a short which I got into a film festival, into a bunch of film festivals, and then I decided to do a longer, longer film and see if that worked. And that took me a long time. That took me two years. And there was no work around at the time. There were strikes. There was a writer strike. There was the um, you know in in the film business, and I was doing auditions and I was. Um, trying to get my and I was trying and having to do it in an American accent so I'd have my little practice things and I do, I got more and more Americanized by people said that when I came back I had a strong American accent and uh, but a lot of that was because you just a lot going to America was I was you had a kudos because you had an English accent but it actually worked against you it didn't really work much for you it was just more annoying <laughs> <laughs> so you just learned to say, you didn't say water anymore. You said water, can, can I have some more water? Because you just don't want to get into the whole conversation. So you, you start immersing yourself, becoming more and more Americanized. I really went native. Right, <laughs> yes, I know. Because it's often, oh, we love your accent. You go, yes, where are yeah. you from? Just north. Yeah. Of, yeah, I'd always, oh, 100 miles north of London. Oh, that's nice. Because <laughs> otherwise you say Norwich. You think, oh, <laughs> have you heard London? London? Just north of London. Oh, yes. Nice. And yeah. that's the end of the conversation. Yeah. Isn't it? But then, so to so was it a big kind of emotional shift to come back to the UK 2012? 
Oh God, yes. I came back for family. They were sort of struggling a bit. I came back to get more answers, you know, as why I wanted to, there were other reasons why I wanted to get out of, uh, out of Britain. And um, yeah, and I have, you know, I have this autistic sister who was obsessed with music as a kid. She used to play stuff on a loop. Maybe that's where I get it from. Yes. Um, you know, one song over and over again. He goes, stop! Stop! <laughs> I don't can't listen to Mungo Jerry in the summertime blues. Yes, oh God, I know. <laughs> it's like, it, it can it can be overkill, isn't it, really, when that happens? So, yes, good old, yes. We, lo- we love to... Yeah, but you know, the weird thing is, because I didn't think I'd sing again, so here I am. You know, gone. So I get my my family over uh, to just to outside Bath in Wiltshire, and um and I take care I take care of them and they've they've died now, um but I took care of them through all of that and uh, um and just uh, fascinated with you know getting up on the, uh, you know listening to music and what's going on over here and and strong connections with what's going on over in the states. And the whole way, the different way that we listen to music now. Um, and I didn't think I'd ever really sing again, but then I, I got this little house, this cottage, 1750. Who'd have thought that I would get this? And the village has its own little choir. And so I started singing with them again. And my neighbor said, oh, if you, you know, if you sung. And uh, it's great. And it's starting me actually thinking, well, you know, why don't I get some instruments together? We did um the most amazing variety show, which was like something out of David Lynch. <laughs> it was just yes. people at their best, you know, people at the best who just want to get on and sing an aria in a kind of slightly gravelly bass voice and intersperse with bits of mandolin. And, you know, this is this was the show with tinsel down, you know, just like something out of Eraserhead. <laughs> and... Um, I just loved it. And I just thought, oh, I need to get some musicians going and start writing again. And I have all this great sort of confidence because I think growing up with my my parents were, my father particularly was, it was all about the voice. You had to have a voice like Shirley Bassey or Frank Sinatra. We we're always analyzing the voice. And now I know that's just nothing to do with anything. It's really wanting that you want to and I was always being hauled over the calls th- throughout my whole music career about my voice and uh, it needs to be this, it needs to be that. And for some reason, I was listening and agonizing. And now I'm in this position where, you know, I have the, I know I have the power that I have and, and all those <laughs> singing lessons with everything. It's kind of, it's all kind of come together. And I know that I just want to get on and, and perform and write about things and just not care, you know, I care about yes. the voice. And and just just do anything out of left field or anything that just comes to mind, and make it as bizarre as straightforward as as I want. So I feel like something like that is coming down the line. You know, I Excellent. feel I can feel that. Yeah. My God, that's fantastic. That's such an interesting place to be, and and artwork. And artwork, yes, yeah. That, okay. this is, let me show you. That's one of mine there. So I got a studio here, and yeah. So I, I, I'm making that film. I started to do art, and yeah. So what kinds yes. of stuff? 
going on. So have you, I mean, apart from going forward, which is always very important, I mean, have you kind of been archiving all your material and sort of bringing it together? Because you have been, you know, doing a lot of stuff over the last 40 years, and it's quite like, nice sometimes to sort of... Put, bring, bring it all together. Well, I think it is all together on the website, um, on the SoundCloud. I just sort of dumped it, a lot of it on my SoundCloud, I, you know, along with podcasts that I did about art. How um, understand modern art by making it, um, and so yeah, and I transferred things digitally, so I've got it, got it all. Um, I still have tape, the tapes, the cassette tapes, yeah. CDs. Um, there are live show, there are shows that that were recorded that I have. Um, so yeah, there's a whole archive. I don't know what's going to happen with the label because what happened, you know, that first album, um, they wrote to me and said, I don't know if you're aware, but this is, this is the thing that's actually selling. I think they want to make some more copies of it, but, um, yeah, to keep selling it, it was, it was discovered. I've had people contacting me about the first album yes. you know, like this and, um, uh, you know, like listening to it, uh, yeah, I made a, the guy, we made a music video of, of one of the songs, Quiet City, when I was in that house. We made it in that house. This was the guy who got me into that house who was a clapper loader for Ken Loach, and he wanted to make music videos, and his girlfriend at the time did all the hair and makeup and whatever. We we did it in that that co-op house, that sort of, that became a squat eventually. Yes. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's all it's all out there. And I don't you, know, you, you you've surfaced. I I have. You no, know, out of the blue. <laughs> so so sort of you did a cover of Femme Fatale. So mm. did you did you enjoy sort of write, uh recording those tracks as well? Like Tomorrow Never Comes, yeah. Train Track <laughs> Children. Yeah, we broke up just after we we printed those things and made those on our own label. Yeah, I, that was after the band broke up. Um, I was working in a post-production house. Right. Post-production house and on reception. That was a whole world. That was, my God. But um, with the with the sons of the, of the great and good, uh, um, and um, who, who were running that company, and there was a girl came in, and I think the guy she knew was was using one of the editing suites and she said to me I'd like to make music video I heard that you were a musician I said well here take a look and she so that's the song she chose so we did that um yeah and uh uh and we did and we record yeah we recorded a lot lot of those songs in um a studio that I think Iggy Pop had recorded in right out in the suburbs of LA. So this is Adventures of Lily. Yeah. Right. So that's um. So who else plays on that? So this was the band that was the LA band. So there was uh, Lars was this, he was Swedish. He played the drums. Mario uh, played the guitar and, and produced it. And so had. Uh, Boyd on bass, and he had been out in Japan and had played a lot in 
in um, bands out in Japan. Right. So I don't know how we found him. Um, My God. So have you got much material that you, you want to record going forward? Well, I, no, the soundtrack of the, uh, which is on the SoundCloud thing of the, um, of the film. Yes. But I just um, wondered if you were starting to feel like you could, you know, regain or, or rediscover some new music. But it's starting to percolate because what I got to do is I got to finish the book, which is called The Adventures of Lily, which I, which I started in the 80s, in the early 80s. It's approached by a magazine, an erotic magazine. I thought, well, I'm going to write erotic fiction just so I can make the money on the side. And I came up with this Adventures of Lily. But I never gave it to them in the end, and it was very kind of spare. So I started it. So I started to write that when I came back to England, and then in lockdown, I more or less finalized it and finished it off. And that's the Adventures of Lily, which right. is what the band was named after, right? So I want to um, get that finished, and um, um, and get that published, um. It's a, it's fun. It's crazy, um, and yeah, just see, and then just get the music going again. Maybe even dust off the saxophone. How about that? That's in the the closet over there. What about the flute? And the flute. Well, I've been playing the flute in this little choir, you know, and this is just a church thing, sort of, you know, every other Saturday, um, Sunday rather. Um, so it's funny because. You know, I started singing in in churches and you know church music. When you're a kid growing up in those those times, we had we assemblies were were hymns. You know, and I'd be in the choir on the stage singing the hymns and um, to a lot of religious music. So that was a big influence as well. I forgot about that. Tom, Thomas Tallis and all of those very sort of open playing songs. Yes. Period. You know. Um, so it. It all it all goes in, but but do I have plans? No, because it's I think you appearing out of the blue, David. You know, <laughs> I mean, what is that all about? Uh, I mean, that stuff has been there for for years. It's well, the in, but but the interest I don't know if you noticed, but in the last I mean, when I started doing these interviews, there wasn't that much interest in the eighties, and then suddenly there's this kind of a wave of kind of in you know people have been writing a lot of books are being coming everyone's been writing their memoirs i don't know if you've noticed this then there was books there's been three books on goth you know this year there was one by john robb one by kathy unsworth and one by a member of the cure there's been quite a few films made there was a film made about a band that only lasted 8 months called rima rima in 1979 and it was like someone made a film and the bizarre thing is you must see it because actually Oh, it, it, it's I'll about this guy who who makes perfume by synesthesia. This kind of sense that he synesthesia. Kind of... That's what I have. Synesthesia. Do you? Oh, whoa, yeah. So he makes this perfume. I have to send you the link to his yes, website because he that. he kind of has this kind of all these perfumes that are based on these kind of quite interesting songs that he hears. But it's oh. just. But there's been a lot of kind of interesting kind of things developing recently. And obviously, I you know, there's a record label called Cherry Red Records, and they're yes. always bringing out these compilations. Oh, Cherry Red. That was so, the age. 
So yeah. they they they've been bringing out stuff, and then there's lots of people. Yes. Bizarrely, last year or two years ago, as time flies by, but this guy, which is oh yeah, this there's a guy here. He went. He's American, but he went to the UEA, and. Um, I love the way they said the UEA. And uh, and and so he went <laughs> and to the UEA for a year, but he he collected all this kind of post punk artwork, and he just brought oh, wow. all. So so it's kind of interesting. All the kind of fanzines, all these posters, all these flyers. Yeah. I mean, what is that all about? Because this is you know we wouldn't have done that, would we? I mean, we would you know certain people would have been have this retro thing, but that seems to be so much more of a thing of generations coming up now. That they go, they go to the past. Whereas, you know, for for us, the seventies, the eighties, it was all about now, the future, like kick over the past. Yes. So it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it, you wonder about where the whole thing is is going, and maybe it's not that anymore. You know, when the punk when punk came out, it was just so, it was so revolutionary. It was so, you know, anti this, anti that, noise, anti. Um, can you go? Can you only go to the past? Can you? Where do you go from there? You know, um, and maybe that's fine. And maybe that's I think, fine. But it's I think there's out. also that processing, and also I think there's arc. There's the archiving world. I think people are thinking, I've got all this yeah. stuff. If I don't do something with it, it's just going to go in landfill. They're just going to yes. put it all in a bin. And what then, happens when people die? I just so yes. so there is a little bit of the archiving, but it's also a yes. fascination because I think things happen and you take it all for granted. You know, being in bands, going to clubs, doing the yeah. BBC sessions. It's all just what happens, and you get on with life, and yeah. you have to hustle a buck. And then yes. you look back, and you you know you a lot of people kind of haven't wanted to look back, and then they think oh, I need to face it, and it's not as bad as it often sometimes can. Memory has it, so you you think oh that's what do you mean? You mean all the all the strife they went through and all the yes, all the kind of the emotional yes. ups and downs yes. and the yes. kind of hopes and fears and you I'm know really a lot because beyond that yeah because a lot yeah. of bands break up badly, don't they? They really yes. you know it's not a good finish, and but they never want very intense kind of you know. Dish of, yeah, and and sort of going back and listening to the music sometimes can be like actually this is quite good, and now you can start to yes. remember some of the better moments rather than the yes. the time when you just wanted to kill one of the bass players or you know the, yeah and yeah. and and sort of go now oh, this is quite interesting, and then I don't know yes. just processing stuff and letting go of some of the angst and being a bit more kind of well, there's so much pressure, you know. I mean, you're really you're trying to make a living at this. You're trying to, and you've got to. To make a living, then is you've got to really get the the, the deal, and then you could be shelved. And um, and now, but of course, bands are are doing it on their their tours, their live shows. Um, so it's a very different setup now. Um, but I yeah. think in the in those in those days, you know, because pe most people say, God, I wouldn't know what to do if I was a musician now. But in our day. Uh, you know the yeah. the past there was a record label there were kind of certain things that yes. happened which yes. now is like no artist really wants to go and put out just a little bit of music on their band camp page I mean that's what most people do now but yes. having a record label and being able to go through that process makes it feel a little bit more real I think that's one of the things that that's well, um, probably in the mid nineties, I mean, putting out that EP, which the Adventures of Lily did, we were always, we were starting to do that, you know, to sort of do it ourselves. And there was a lot of things around that was advocating doing it yourself. So that was already starting to happen. 
um, that you could, and we were reading about everybody who could, you know, and keep control. And so you weren't going to, you weren't going to sign bad, bad deals. And there was a lot of stories about bad deals or, you know, people trying to get their, their, their rights back or their music back or re-recordings, yes. you know, that whole Prince thing and the whole, you know, all so of most, most of the a lot of the bands that I've done from the eighties have wanted to somehow yes get their music and and sort of tidy it up and get a nice like compilation of all the stuff they've done and have it released so that again it's a way of just feeling like archiving it but also processing what they've what they've achieved rather than just kind of having bits here and there. Well, I suppose I mean it was satisfying to have uh, you know that first album on the American label surface um they want to do they want to put they want to print some more up there but they don't actually have the master tapes i mean i have some rough tapes of it um just just cassette recordings um but do i want to i think what interests me is about is just going out live and maybe just an acoustic and an acoustic setup and talk and just in knowing the confidence confidence I have now and the the way I could talk to people and what I what would I'd sing about just allowing whatever that would come out and just see what happened with that you see a lot of music in sort of art centers a lot of people are traveling doing that yes. so maybe because it's a like because that was it was like going into a black hole when that the whole thing ended because it was such a so much energy and drive that took you know coming over to the states and starting from scratch and um, building things up, building things, starting from scratch again and building the next project up. And so I don't know. I, I and, but I trust what I trust more. And this is this is the influence of being in California in Los Angeles. So you you absorb all of this, you know, because the, everybody's trying to make it out there. So there's everybody's got their own philosophies and all the kind of spirituality surrounding that. And uh, that was very interesting. Get getting in, in that that somehow it comes. And if I look back on my life, <clears throat> just when I'm at my lowest ebb, I meet somebody in a coffee shop, or just when I think I can't do this, I get a I get a I guess something in you know, an Indiana Jones thing. You know, things happen. Yes. I believe in that. I believe in that. And it's less about you've got to enjoy it while it is. And if you're straining and striving to get the deal or whatever, you're not enjoying the journey so much, the, the process. So I think that's what I would think um, about the whole thing is just kind of relax and just not put any pressure on it and not, not be thinking about. Um, whether one thing that that I've learned from that album, which I you know wrote practically in my my bedroom just in that little studio, um, in that in that cooperative house, was, you know I had I I had ideas that it had to be in a proper studio that I had to be this. Well, that's the album that people you know liked, and they have they write to me and they tell me what they think is going on. They think this there's a whole story, and they tell me what. What they think is happening to this girl and how how she's what's what her life what what the story is into that to that album and I think God I didn't even think at that time at that time I didn't think that any um so you can't be prescriptive you can't plan things out 
you've uh, you just got to make something that appeals to you. That's that I loved. I loved making that. Yes. You know, people told me afterwards, well, that's not going to be. I mean, you can, this is the, the, blah, 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 blah. you know, there's so many people in your life that are telling you what's wrong with you or what's wrong with it. You know, that's, you just get a barrage of that. Um, I don't know why people do that. But um, the people told me that about that album. Well, no one's going to, I mean, what you, uh, um, but that's the one that people people like because it was, it was just me and my imagination, just a girl <clears throat> in the uh, sort of late 80s, just dreaming outside her window, looking through the window to the garden and writing whatever came to my mind. Somebody came to the door, one of the songs, The Wrong Door, a guy in a patchwork um, outfit arrived on the door. I opened, he knocked on the door and he opened it. And I said, can I help you? And he didn't say anything. He stared at me and then he just walked away. And so I, that inspired the song, The Wrong Door. It was just my world, you know. Um, that I was yes. Thinking, and, and just do that. Just do that. And who knows? Who knows who's that? You know, if you, I remember getting in the, in the 90s, there was a lot of, um, do you remember this? There was kind of. Big uh, in in um, there's so in in America there's so many so many so much room for such a diverse taste in the states and there's there's a sort of a market for everything you know whereas in Britain it was top of the pop so it was this you know you had to get in that to get seen but over there people had interests all over the place and I met people who were interested in Japanese girl bands you know and that was a similar thing they they made these rinky dink um, albums themselves, and there's a charm to it and a sweetness to it. I don't know if you've ever. Looked at yes, there, there was a band called Shonen Knife who. Yes, were, right. Who were very. They supported Nirvana, and they came to the Norwich Arts Centre quite recently. In fact, I did an interview with the, the you know the singer a few years did ago because she did. There was a great compilation that came out in the early '90s of kind of American, slightly post-punk bands like Sonic Youth. Um, yeah. covering the work of the Carpenters, yes. and it's just a yes. collection. And Shona Knife is on there as well. Yeah, um, I think they do top of uh, top of the world or something like that. So um, yeah. yes, but yes, yeah, so there's a, there's a kind of clean clarity, but there's a sort of a a spirit of punk without it being Sid Vicious, which is always important. So um, yeah. yes, so there you go. And now we have K-pop that everyone's obsessed with. So. Um, I know. I've been interested in that. I've looked at that and uh, pondered it. I think we're fascinated with that side of, you know, that world, a part of the world that's been so closed off to us. It started that we're we're fascinated. Of course, it's all American derivative, isn't it? Yes. Um, it... I, I am fascinated with that. And why that is so fascinating to all ages um, is really interesting. I think it's you know, I think it's so beautiful, these guys and girls. And they're so doing us, doing the West. It's, it must be something about that fascination to see ourselves sort of kind of reflected through through something else. Um, it must be, it and, must, yeah, they must have just listened to all that, you know, American, well, British right. bands. Yes. And, and sort of giving it their own take and stuff like that. So you're working on your, your sort of second book, Adventures of Lily, and you've done Orange Peel as well. So is there any other books that you think? Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, there'll be the third one. It's a trilogy, and I think it's all kind of making my way to um, what's really going. Also, there's another book about AI, because that's the thing now, isn't it? Yes. Intelligence. Are they going to start running the show? And I have a, I have an interesting idea about that. Um, um, the kind of compassionate uh, version of AI. Um, <laughs> the, so yeah, there's that. Um, there's more art to be done. Um, I need to get myself back on track with that. My parents. That was very interesting. Um, spending time with my parents and the whole aging process and illness and death um, um that's that's all going to come in somewhere it's made me feel like time life is time is short got to get on and do stuff i have the freedom now so i mean it's been 3 months since my father died so i'm starting to just about and then you appearing and then people are res- people respond to my podcasts about art because I'm just talking, I taught myself how to to uh, to paint and draw, and yes. uh, and so that's in the spirit of how I did the music, really, just very naively, just uh, just because I love it and because it's fun. Um, so, and is your sister still around? Yeah, she is. She is, and she likes to paint too. Right. Um, she's a character. Yeah, full-on character. Um, yes, she is. And, yeah, just obsessed um, with music, has to have music on a, a lot of the time. Yes, quite tricky. <laughs> Mungo Jerry, that's quite tricky, isn't it, really? Still in the 70s, it's too much. You need to get into the 80s, really, one day. But never mind. So, She's in look. the 80s now. She's in the 80s now. Good. That's good. So if you if you could have whispered something to your like 16-year-old self, is there anything in particular that you'd hold? Oh thought, god, oh. I have so much to say to any 16-year-old self. Oh I god, what would what? you say? Just don't listen to people who are going to tell you that it that it doesn't happen or point out everything that's wrong with you. Um to just to, to trust yourself, um, not try and be somebody that you're not. Um, just um, and and how to navigate the sharks out there. Um, well, you know, you're never going to put an old head on young shoulders. It's it's always going to be there's always going to be pitfalls and whatever. But just um, whatever it was that I was doing, I had an enormous amount of fun, and uh, it was just nonstop adventure. It's just really, if you could be open to adventure, I would say to people now. Yes. Not feel so restricted and not confined, um, but get out into the world. I guess that is, that is the motto at the UEA, isn't it? Do different or something like that. So is you that, did... is that right? Oh God! Thought... <laughs> oh God! God help us! <laughs> so you want... you I certainly you you, you you use the UEA as a good springboard for the kind of next parts of the journey, which were. Oh, I guess so. I mean, I didn't want to be there. <laughs> I know, but uh, I guess it, you know, if it hadn't been for that, the the band, the John Peel sessions, and then well, who yeah. knows? I mean, maybe maybe something else. I mean, I I wouldn't I wouldn't advocate that as a be all and the end all. Going no, to, my God, no, I wouldn't. You know, but no. it, but it was a good time. I can see that from you know the people I it spoke to. It was a good to. and a bad time. It was 
it was there were lots of challenges to it, lots of difficulties. You got you must have got a student. <coughs> you must have come got a student grant, so you didn't have any debt when you came out of your degree. Right. Oh my God! Thank God for that. So you yeah. kept you kept a zero balance. Yes. Free. Which is which Not, might... never, you know, not much money for a long time, but um, just making it work. Yes. And a and able to somehow, you know, with imagination and um creative yeah, spirit. My 16 year self, yeah. Um just don't listen and don't don't let people knock you. Um and 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 trust in what you're doing. You know, don't 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 write things and suddenly wish it was something else, but just but be happy being a girl and writing about what you want to write about and and appreciate where you're different and um just sort of know yourself know what you can know what you can do and be proud be proud of that and um yeah i think going to the states um was very was great for building confidence and for for belief yes well it did sound amazing your la experience is um quite a good chapter isn't it in a way you know you packed a lot into that little moment so um yeah that's, that's well, it, was a long, it was a long enough moment. I mean, I got there in 91, I went through the earthquake in 94 in LA, in Los Angeles. So that was that was an experience. Um, yes, yeah. but then it was nearly, was it over 20 years in America? So that's quite a good, a good yeah, chapter of your life. Yes. Yeah. Nice I wanted to move on. I mean, if I hadn't come back, maybe I would have gone to South America or something like that, I think I would. I wanted to move on at that point, and um, I stayed there that long to get stuff done. I think the books and the, the band, the music, and and the films. Um, yeah. There you go. That's yeah. it. But you've got, a, and you're creating a studio in your your new place. Yeah, I had a studio in Bath. <coughs> So this this little place, 1750, it's a little it's a little munchkin cottage, a little elf cottage. And it's got a what was formerly a wash house, basket house or something in the garden. So that's uh so yeah, and then here, uh when my, my parents had this flat, this is this is a great studio because it's all picture windows and views for forever and a lot of light. So probably use this as well. Um, which is near um, near Corsham, which is an amazing um, village. It's like a film set or an opera set or a Jane Austen backdrop. It's Corsham, where there used to be an art school. There, I think this still is. But um, so, and I, you know, met people. And funnily enough, Americans have responded to my podcast, the art podcast. So, been talking to them, and so I'll probably go back there at some point. I haven't been back since been here um but it'd be nice to go back i'm still in contact with um people over there excellent this is all... yeah yes. well look god i shall have to go to bed soon i'm quite <laughs> and that dear listener is the end of the interview i know uh, it's well, it is a lot there but anyway i thought it was interesting and uh, that's the main thing anyway a massive thank you to celia hemkin for Give Me the Time for that interview, which has been a fascinating insight into her creative process. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's a true story. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.